In the middle of the first century AD, in the ancient Mediterranean town of Corinth, there was this small band of people. They were Christians. They were a church. They were a fledgling church, just a baby church, very much like us. They were just getting started. Their beginnings were somewhere around the year 50 AD when Paul, who was an apostle, had traveled to Corinth and had spent 18 months there preaching the gospel and and starting this church. Then, at some point in the spring of AD 53 or 54 or 55, we're not sure what year exactly. We know it was in the spring. This person, the Apostle Paul, was in another city. He was in Ephesus. And he writes a letter back to the church that's in Corinth. And that's the letter that Bob read to us from. It's in your Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians. Now, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to find that. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. It'll tell you the page number. It's toward the end of the Bible. So Paul is writing this letter to this young church that's just getting started. And in the first three verses of the letter, he does the typical thing that you do when you begin a letter in the Greco-Roman world at that time. You identify the author. You know, in our letters, we put our name at the end, right? I would say, Dear Janelle, and it wouldn't be till the end of the letter that I would say, From Aubrey. They were a little smarter. They knew that you liked to know who was writing you before the end of the letter. So they actually identified the author up front in the letter. So it says, Paul, called by the will. So it starts out with the author. Then he identifies who he's writing to. And then he gave a greeting. Now, this is all standard stuff in letter writing at that time. And then in verses 4 to 9, he does the next thing that you're supposed to do when you write a letter in that culture. You give thanks. And he gives thanks for them. That's verses 4 to 9. And then in verse 10, he does the next thing that you're supposed to do in writing a letter. You identify the theme of your letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 is the theme of the whole letter. It's, it's his agenda. It's what everything's all about. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is Paul's primary concern that he's addressing throughout the letter. Now, in the next seven verses, verses 11, verse 10 is um, the theme. Then from verse 11 through verse 17, we learn why he's so concerned about unity and why unity and his desire for this church to have unity, why that's the theme of the letter. It's because the Corinthian church is a mess. It's filled with divisions and cliques and factions. And in this little part, it's called, actually in Greco-Roman letter writing, it's called the narratatio. It's the narration of the events that led me to write this letter. And in those verses, we learn that there are all these little subgroups within the Corinthian church, that the Corinthian church had gotten into the habit of categorizing people of summing you up as soon as you walked in. Oh, I can tell you're from East 
Rockingham, by the way you talk. So you belong with that little group over there. And, but it, it was more serious than that. I mean, it's not just that they summarized each other and categorized each other, but they split up into these groups. And it was based not on their accent. It was based on, well, my favorite preacher is this guy, and my favorite pastor is this guy. And they divided along all these different lines of the rich and the poor, those who have this particular spiritual gift, and those, oh, they don't have that gift. Um, so they go in that group over there. And, and these divisions were hardcore. And they get so mad at each other over these issues that they actually started suing each other in the court. Aaron gets the privilege of preaching on that passage sometime in September. And like I said, the Corinthian church is in a mess. They can't agree on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable when it comes to their sexuality. And the list just goes on and on. There's this wide diversity of viewpoints and lifestyles and ethnic groups. And all of these differences result in divisions and cliques and factions. And so Paul is writing this letter to this young church, encouraging them persuading them to unity. Now this morning, our focus is on verses 18 to 25. Standard letter writing technique. Identify the author, the recipient, the greeting, give a thanksgiving, identify your theme, give the background for why you're writing the letter, and then the main body of the letter. And starting in verse 18 and going all the way through the letter, Paul begins to address Topics, different topics and different subtopics and sub-subtopics, all of which he's concerned about as being the reasons that they're fighting and being issues that if they can get sorted out, they can find unity. Now, our passage this morning is the first topic, the first subject that Paul covers as he's trying to get this church to have unity. But it's not just one topic among all the others. It's the first topic. In other words, it's the starting point. For Paul, what he deals with here first is the foundational issue. Let's pick up in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, the cross, the word of the cross. For Paul, this is shorthand. When it comes to unity or really anything else, this is Paul's starting point. And he comes back to this over and over. This phrase, the word of the cross, it's really like a suitcase. Paul is packing a lot of meaning into that one little phrase. But suitcases are helpful for when you need to get from A to B quickly, right? And you don't want to carry everything in your arms. You can put a lot in there. The word of the cross, it's a, it's a suitcase. It's quick. It's, it's a shorthand summary of the non-negotiable heart of Christianity. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's God shockingly intervening. In order to save and transform the world. Now turn a few pages to the right. To chapter 15 verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received. That Christ died for our sins. 
in accordance with the scripture. Now here he's opening his shorthand up a little bit. He's opening the suitcase. He's pulling a few things out of the suitcase. You see, when we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And on the cross, we see that first of all, God is judging us. He's saying, your sins are so wicked, this is what they deserve. The first word of the cross is a word of judgment. That your sins are not little bitty naive indiscretions. They are treason against the king that deserve the death penalty. That's the word of the cross. And and secondly, we see that in the death of Jesus on the cross... Not only do our sins deserve a radical pouring out of the wrath of God, but that on the cross, God himself has taken on himself our sins and our guilt, and he's removed it. That's the word of the cross. That's the word that the cross speaks. The cross says that every single one of us From the cutest little baby, which would be a Spears baby. The rest of you, second place is not bad for the Velkers. From the cutest little baby all the way up to the cutest senior person in this room. We won't look over at her. Every single one of us are sinners. And we laugh, but it is not a laughing matter. We really are sinners, and our sin is really bad. It's awful. And we all deserve a terrible punishment. We all deserve the wrath of God to destroy us, to annihilate us. And our Creator did not overlook that. He took that punishment himself. On the one hand, you and I are more wicked than we could ever imagine. But on the cross, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And the cross cancels out neither of those things. It holds them both up. The cross, it is the unimaginable way that God has chosen to save us. By his own son being crucified. Now let's go back to chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. So, in contrast to all of the divisions of the Corinthian church, rich and poor, Greek and Jew, slave and free, people who speak in tongues and people who don't speak in tongues, educated people and uneducated people, the list goes on and on. In contrast to all of those polarities. But it's not just the Corinthian church, is it? I mean, we have our own ways of categorizing. Right? We can 
line people up. Illegal immigrants, we were here because we were born here. Republicans, Democrats. The rich, the poor, people who are easy to be around and people who are not fun to be with. The young and the old, the list goes on and on. But Paul says in contrast to all of the ways that we tend to categorize people, the message of the cross renders every other category obsolete. The only separation that counts, the only one that counts, is the separation between people who are on the road to perishing. They are in the process of perishing and the people who are in the process of being saved. At the end of the day, there are only two groups of humans in this world. It's not America and the rest of the world. It's not educated and uneducated. It's not rich and poor. There are only two kinds of people. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those who are perishing, literally, those who are in the process of being destroyed. They are currently in the process of being ruined. People who reject the message of the cross They are perishing. And they are on the road to ultimate and definitive destruction. And only God's intervention can save them. On the other hand, those who are being saved. There's a group of people in this world who accept the message of the cross. And they are on the road to ultimate And definitive salvation. You see the cross of Christ. Is the sifting criterion. That exposes. The only two truly different types of people. Now notice how these two groups of people. View a crucified Christ. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing. But. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To one group, when they look at the cross, it is the power of God. But to the other group, the cross is what? Foolishness. Now that's an odd comparison, isn't it? Normally, if we're picking the opposite of foolishness, what do we pick? Wisdom. Especially in a Greek world that was in love with wisdom. Wisdom and folly. That's the natural pair. Or, so he says, to those who are perishing, the word of the cross is folly. But to those of us who are being saved, it is. And you expect, fill in the blank, wisdom. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say it's folly to one and wise to the other. Or take the other one. He doesn't say to those of us who are being saved, it is power. Now, what would be the opposite of power? Weakness. He doesn't say to those who are perishing the word of the cross is weakness. So why is he... This is not a very intelligent contrast. Or is it? I mean, what's he doing? Did he just slip? (laughs) Did did he get... um, Did he lack precision? I mean, later on in verse 30, he actually says, Jesus on the cross is the wisdom of God. So he has the ability to describe the positive side of this equation as wisdom. But here he doesn't. He describes it as power. What's he doing here? Well, the problem 
for us in our mechanistic post-industrial age is that we tend to think of power in terms of force, like electrical power. There's a force or horsepower or influence or political power or economic power. But for Paul in this context, because the first thing he says is folly, you've got to evaluate Power in this context. In this context, power is not about force. It's about effectiveness. For Paul, when he uses the word power here, he means effective. He doesn't mean force. See, he's not trying to contrast power and weakness. That wouldn't work, would it? Because the cross confuses all of those categories. (laughs) The cross is all about weakness. I mean, when you look at the cross, you, you see the execution of a humiliated criminal whose manner of death was too shameful to even mention in polite conversation. That has nothing to do with the force of God. The cross has nothing to do with God displaying His military might. Right? His power, his force. He could have had angels come down and devastate, right? This is not about the muscle of God or the intellect of God or the money of God. No, when Paul says to us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God, he's saying that the cross is effective. It is effective. Through Christ being crucified on the cross, God is effectively delivering human beings from the evil of sin and destruction. And there is a group of people in this world for whom the cross is effectively saving them. It's doing what it needs to do. But there's another group for whom everything I've just said is silly. And absurd. It's not wisdom. It's literally in the Greek. Folly is some translations. Foolishness. The Greek word is moria. Moria. It's the Greek word we get our word moron from. There are people in this world for whom what you and I believe about the cross, only a moron would believe it. It's stupid. It it doesn't flow with common sense. It doesn't measure up. It's not reasonable. It's not rational. It's not what educated people believe. Now look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now get this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So Paul is saying that the wisdom of the world is ineffective. Wisdom is the ability to navigate life successfully. Foolishness is the inability When you choose a foolish way, you are choosing a way that will not get you there. Paul is saying the the best the world can figure out about how to solve this situation is ineffective. The very best we have to offer, 
The, the, the greatest intellect that our academic institutions can produce when they offer a solution, at the end of the day, it will not work. What the academic elite in our culture say we need, the lifestyle that Hollywood holds up as the way to happiness, the way of living that Wall Street holds out as the best way of living, the core values of those who do not accept the cross, these things do not work. They cannot deliver you from evil. They cannot deliver you from your sin. They cannot deliver you from definitive destruction. The very best wisdom of the world is folly because it is ineffective. It is fruitless. It is an empty road. If you do not receive the message of the cross, you are perishing. All of your effort will lead to the nothingness of an abyss in which you are forever lost. Definitive destruction. Now look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach... Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here, we see that those who are perishing, they respond to the message of the cross by demanding proof. One of two types of proof. Either the proof of a miracle... Yeah, I buy into the whole world view that we need salvation and that God can do it, but I need a miracle to show me that this Jesus is that God. That's one type of demand of proof. I'm not going to deal with that because I don't think that's where most of our culture is. The other type is the demand for reason. The solution you offer must measure up. It must measure up to what I believe makes sense. Now that's the culture we live in. That's the typical Greek response. Some people, maybe you, or maybe you have friends or people in your family, want God to measure up. To measure up to their standards, to our culture's standards of what makes sense of what is reasonable, of what's wise. You see, when you talk about authentic Christianity, the real Christianity, I'm not talking about that version of Christianity that has a gospel of tolerance or a gospel of inclusivity or reducing Christianity to some ooey-gooey sense of love that doesn't take sin seriously and that has a vague idea of the cross. It's just a piece of jewelry, but it's not a radical judgment on sin. No, when you... When you articulate authentic Christianity, when you actually confess that every human, every baby to every adult, is a wicked sinner that deserves hell. And Jesus was God himself. Born of a virgin. 
lived a perfect and sinless life and performed miracles and died a cruel death on a cross in our place. That God himself took on himself our sin and our guilt and our punishment. When you confess that and when you share that with your friends and your family, there are plenty of people who will think you're a moron. It's not a respectable belief. It's not rational. It doesn't measure up to common sense. It's nonsense. We don't need to be saved. The idea, you know, people like Hitler and, you know, just pick any cruel dick tyrant in this world. No, they, they need to be punished. But not those of us who are the victims. We don't need punishment. <coughs> The idea that we face a future of eternal destruction, that is not an educated view. And the notion that we have a com- complete inability to find God and to know God without God's radical intervention, that only Jesus on the cross gives us access to God. And any image or any portrayal of God across from the, apart from the cross, it's, non- it, it, it's, it's wrong. That view, it is not a warranted belief. In today's culture. You know why the Greeks found this whole Jesus on the cross unreasonable? It's different from the reason our culture finds it unreasonable. You see, it's because the Greeks found it impossible to conceive of God in personal terms. To the Greek mind, the first characteristic of God was apatheia. We get our word apathetic. To the Greek mind, the first characteristic of God was the total inability to feel. The Greeks argued God cannot feel. A God who suffers, who feels, was a contradiction in terms. So God of necessity, to the Greek mind, was utterly detached and remote. You see, the Greeks can use their considerable intellectual gifts. Now, these cats are smart. They knew the circumference of the earth. They had done all kinds of unbelievable things with their intellect and with their intellect they had come to this view of God that God cannot feel now obviously apatheia is not the criteria that our intellectual elites in our culture today have raised up and established for God but we've made the same move we've created a God in our image We've established standards for who that God must be. Our culture has created a standard that any proposal for God must measure up to. Tolerance, inclusivity, ironclad rationality. And maybe you're that person. Or you know someone for whom the word of the cross is nonsense. The person who wants to know God but you've set up all the criteria and you're looking for a God that measures up to this standard you've created. You're looking for irrefutable proof that the God proclaimed is that God. Now look again at verse 21. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. To save those who believe. You see, being smart and being intelligent 
does not put you in a better position to know God than someone who is less smart or less intelligent or less educated. Educated and uneducated. Literate or illiterate. Intelligent or unintelligent. Everyone is on the same level when it comes to knowing God because wisdom is not the path. Now, aren't you glad? Those who know God are not to be congratulated for their astute insight and perceptive understanding. In fact, finding God makes you no smarter than anyone else. When it comes to knowing God, the nub of the issue is trust. Not intelligence. Only the power of God can save us and we can receive that powerful saving only by trusting in Jesus. Not any old Jesus, but the word of the cross Jesus, the crucified Jesus. So where are you in all of this? You see, there are only two groups of people in the world. There are only two groups of people in this room. And it's not based on our age or intelligence or ethnic group. It's based on where you stand in relation to the cross. There are only two groups of people in this room. Those who are on the path to ultimate destruction. Those who are perishing right now. And those who are being saved right now. So what do you see when you see Jesus on the cross? Nonsense? A myth? Fairy tale? Folly? Or do you see something that boggles your mind, but it is powerfully saving you? Do you want to be saved rather than to perish? Would you rather be saved than face ultimate destruction? Will you hang on to your demand for convincing proof? Whether it's in the form of reason or miracle. Will you hang on to your demand for proof rather than asking God to save you? Will you perish in your search for wisdom instead of admitting that you need a savior and that God alone has the right to set the criteria for who he is and how you are saved? Belief. It has pleased God to make that the criteria. It has pleased God to make belief the only way That Anya and Katya, or me, or Esther, or any of... It has pleased God to make belief the only way that you and I can be forgiven for our sins and restored in our relationship to our Creator. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and that His life and His death and His resurrection alone is your salvation. Believing in this passage, it means a lot more than just in your mind you buy into it. It means you put all of your trust in it. It's when my wife looks me in the eye and says, Aubrey, I believe in you. 
It's looking into the face of Christ and saying, I believe in you. I trust you. I put all of my trust in you. Salvation cannot come through me being good or being wise or being smart. It only comes by believing that you alone can save me. And casting myself on you, the belief that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans, but raised from the dead by God. And that this executed criminal from a despised race, he alone is the Lord of the world. And he is summoning all people to obedience. This really is. The only difference that matters between two people that meet on the street. The cross really does divide the human race. See, Paul was saying, hey, Corinthians, you are right. There are divisions. And there is only one that matters. And you need to take this one seriously. Everyone in this room is in one group or another. And if you believe that the message of the cross is crazy then you are perishing. If you do not believe that the message of the cross is true, you are perishing. But if you believe this, if you put your faith in Christ crucified, you will be saved. And let me close on this one really positive note. Some of you are overwhelmed Because of the junk in your trunk. Because of all of the messing up you do time and time and time again. You know what? The Corinthians were mess ups. They were an embarrassment to the church. And Paul says to us who are being saved. Look, once you buy in, there's no getting out. God's going to save you. He is. That's good. That's good. Let's pray.